Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the 17th Century Warfare miniseries, a lovely part of the 30 Years War series that we're also doing, and which we will pick up in its narrative form in the new year. What's on the box today? Well, we're wrapping up this miniseries today, but it's a very long exercise in wrapping up, so it's going to take two episodes in the wrapping We've come a long way in this series since we first looked at the feudal conflicts of medieval England, and I feel it'd only be right to leave you guys with a kind of couplet of summary episodes to put into proper context what we've learned. We will classify the 17th century, even our limited examination of it, as one of great and immensely significant developments in warfare, where each new conflict, be it between the Ottomans and Habsburgs, the Spanish and Dutch, or the Swedes and Poles, taught Europe's inhabitants new things about warfare, and inculcated within military theory new lessons which will be built upon in the future. The battlefield remained the laboratory of the military theorists, and it enjoyed extensive repeated use during the 1600s, as we well know. A huge thanks to all of you that made researching and bringing this series to you guys such an enjoyable experience, We are nearly ready to delve into the narrative of this series, and I'm really looking forward to doing that, because the last time we looked at the narrative of the Thirty Years' War, I was a very young wee lad, and you probably weren't listening to me at that time, because my listenership was, well, let's just say much smaller then than it is now. And I have you guys to thank for that. Had you listened to that Thirty Years' War series as it came out from 2013 to 14? You were probably enduring something of a rocky road at that time, but that experience really set us up for bigger and better things. As the new year dawns, we have so much in store for listeners of When Diplomacy Fails. One of the best ways you can keep track of all that is to follow us on the various social media platforms. Facebook and Twitter are pretty much the only two I use, so if you're an Instagram head or someone who goes regularly on Tumblr or Reddit or Any of those things, there's probably all sorts of other ones that I'm just not down enough with the kids to really know about, but do check out Twitter and Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at WDF Podcast, like the Facebook page, and most effectively, I would argue, join the Facebook group. Because that way, if you aren't much of a fan of Facebook in general, 
You can stick to the conversations that we have there, and you'll never have to be bothered with those random weird things appearing in your newsfeed. The Facebook group is nearing a thousand members, and the Facebook page is over three thousand members. And I'm trying to push the Twitter handle, Twitter follower page, whatever it's called, Twitter profile. But I'm sure there's a proper name for it. But these things just escape me. But I'm trying to get it towards two thousand followers. And that will be pretty cool when we reach that. And you can help by following us at WDF Podcast. And yeah, we don't just ramble on about incessant garbage. We do actually give you some pretty good stuff. I've got all sorts of online things and my social media queued up to release. So you might be wondering how I'm able to keep pace with all of these things. But I assure you, I've got plans for the future for those social media platforms. And they're all worthy of your time. So if you can't get enough of this podcast, if the every two weeks format is kind of getting you down a little bit or you miss my voice at regular intervals, then maybe get me in other areas too. And that way you'll have your fill of Zach and you'll never go into withdrawal symptoms. Otherwise, I have to thank you guys so much for making this year by far the most successful on Patreon. We've got all these new PhD pals signed up. But I want to give a bit of love to Poland is not yet lost as well, because in the last few months, having talked about PhD polls so much, you might be forgiven for forgetting that we don't actually have anything else going on. But we do. Poland is not yet lost is in the grand swing of things. And in the next week, in fact, we're going to be releasing two episodes instead of one on the Monday, because we're going to be talking about the Polish nobility. And I figured it's the kind of topic that demands two episodes all in one go. Also, for the sake of my OCD senses, this means I can start the narrative of Poland is not yet lost and the narrative of the Thirty Years' War from January 2020 onwards. Because I like to tie things in nice, neat little bows, I figured that was the best way to do things. So if you're interested, if you're interested in learning about how the Commonwealth functioned, if you're interested in learning about the contributions that the nobility had to that functioning or dysfunctioning government, then make sure you check Poland is not yet lost out. For a fiver a month, the same price as that coffee that you wish you hadn't gotten because instant is realistically just as good and you can make that at home, you could, that was a very convoluted way of promoting it, but you could actually be listening to an hour of extra content every month and getting that weekly fix of when diplomacy fails. If it sounds good to you, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails is of course where you gotta go. Click on the link in the description below, you know the drill by now. Anyway guys, let's delve into this episode here. Thanks again so much for making it all possible. Without any further ado, let's begin. The Thirty Years' War could assuage the destruction across the centre of Europe, so it was only inevitable that a significant amount of its population were caught in the middle of this warpath. The majority of the damage done was caused by prolonged, chronic stripping of the lands by rampaging armies, and the destruction of the old infrastructures that had held these lands in working productive order, since so many men had gone to war, been killed, or turned to banditry. Yet these results were to be expected, considering the three decades of concentrated suffering which the centre of the continent endured. The men who made the critical decisions, be it Frederick V accepting the Bohemian crown, Ferdinand II seeking to stop him, the Danes, Swedes or French getting directly involved, 
All of these decisions were, of course, decisions of policy, made by the upper echelons of that polity's government. At the end of the day, though, there was only ever going to be one method to bring this decision to its conclusion, and that method was war. The war, which was unleashed and prolonged within Europe between 1618-48, has been the subject of constant scholarly debate. Everything from its significance, to the military lessons which were learned, to the actual duration, to the importance of the Peace of Westphalia, to the very term Thirty Years' War itself, has come under the microscope. The conflict is difficult to classify, because it doesn't fit into any prearranged boxes. It was launched and prolonged for reasons of religion constitutional politics, opportunism, civil liberties, wealth and security, according to its varied actors. The conflict saw mercenaries join the war on one side and end up on the other. Similarly, some powers were to become mercenary in their behaviour, seen in the example given by Saxony. The Saxon elector changed his stance on the war four times, beginning the war on the emperor's side, then declaring against Ferdinand, then concluding a truce with him and joining his side again, and finally, when all hope seemed lost, exiting the war at peace with all sides. If contemporaries like John George of Saxony could not decide where they fit into the conflict, then what hope do historians have of conclusively deciding what it all meant? Measuring the impact of the war is similarly difficult, because the furies which the Thirty Years' War released were not felt all at once, or equally across the continent. Thus, the debate of the war's precise impact, or measuring its destructive force, whatever that might mean, continues to deny the historian a satisfying answer. The war was, at different times to different individuals, a constant and terrible bedfellow, or little more than a rumour about a distant event. One need look no further than the Habsburg hereditary lands, Emperor Ferdinand II's homeland of Inner Austria with Styria and Carinthia gained 80,000 and 20,000 new citizens respectively during the period 1600 to 1650. Against all odds, Royal Hungary gained 100,000 new citizens. In that same time period though, Bohemia's population, and Bohemia being on the border of these territories, that population plummeted by nearly half. Those communities living along important rivers like the Rhine, the Main, or the Elbe were liable to suffer greater hardship as armies roved up and down these transit and trade routes. On the other hand, some regions suffered terribly in the initial phases of the war, only to be largely ignored thereafter. For those that were committed to the war until the final phase, such as Brandenburg, for instance, the losses were particularly stark. The urban population in Brandenburg, just to take that example, fell from 113,500 souls to just 34,000, while those living in the countryside declined from 300,000 to a desolate 75,000, which transformed innumerable villages into ghost towns. The disputed neighbouring Pomeranian region also suffered, its population contracting from 160,000 to 96,000 between 1630 to 48. These numbers do not all necessarily mean that death occurred. More often it was the case that the local population decided to flee from an approaching army, but their exit created additional problems, especially when an influx of refugees arrived at an unprepared city. Outbreaks of disease could then ravage the weakened, malnourished travellers and spread like wildfire within the city. 
Unaware soldiers travelling across Germany could then carry the disease to the next breeding ground, leading to outbreaks of particularly virulent strains of bubonic plague and typhus, particularly between the years 1622 to 23, in 1625, in 1634, and then just as the war was ending from 1646 to 50. In some places, the crisis never truly vanished, and plague remained a constant fixture of life, compounding the misery which the average citizen faced. Even non-combatant countries were not safe, as was the case with France in the late 1620s. The storm outside her borders contributed to the spread of plague. It arrived from the fortress of Metz in 1625, and when the harvest failed in 1627, the starving French peasants died in their millions. We must rely on estimates that remain in place of solid figures, but Peter H. Wilson concluded that 1.5 to 2 million French citizens died by the end of that outbreak, out of a population in France which was at most 20 million strong. When armies were on the march, they of course only made matters much worse. Germany suffered while Wallenstein gathered his enormous force together during the winter of 1625-26, to but fared a bit better in 1630-31, to thanks mostly to a more bountiful harvest, which could bolster the strength of the citizens. In places where the armies remained stationary for months or years, such as in the case of a siege, the results could be catastrophic though. So it was in northern Italy during the War of the Mantuan Succession, where Milan shed a third of its population, and Mantua lost half of its population. When the armies marching around the disease-ridden plains of northern Italy crossed back into Germany in 1631, the southern part of the empire was reinfected, piggybacking on allied armies as they marched into Bavaria, and from there it spread across the Rhine and back into France, always carried by soldiers moving to and from the front lines. Some regions never recovered, others experienced a vast decline in the amounts of births in relation to deaths, so it was in Stralsund or in Nuremberg, which did not restore their pre-war birth rate until the middle of the 19th century. Prolonged occupation of a given region could bring apocalyptic consequences as the armies stripped the lands bare and this brought other dangers, such as successive years of famine, followed by starvation and then disease. In fact, it was through disease that most armies experienced their worst casualties. One in ten soldiers were said to be sick at any one time, and armies on the march could spread disease, and in some cases benefit from it, such as in Mantua in 1630, when the population was decimated by a bout of plague, and the Habsburgs thereafter were able to capture Mantua because of its weakened garrison. It is estimated that casualties caused directly from military violence throughout the whole of the Thirty Years' War amounted to 450,000. This figure was calculated by adding the casualties from each military confrontation in the war, but it remains, of course, contentious and open to debate. So too does the total impact which disease had upon casualties. Some estimates place the losses to disease in the 1618-48 to period at an eye-watering 1.8 million. It is very easy to become desensitised to the constant battles, as potentates acted to bring their ambitions to life. In each of these battles though, on the ground, behind the cover of glory, of legend, or of the towering advantages which were taken from successful engagements, there was the soldier, suffering in often grim conditions, fighting using often desperate, inglorious methods, 
and reaching an outcome which was bloodstained, feared by at least a significant portion of those involved. What was more, the sheer ferocity and costliness of the Thirty Years' War eliminated any sense of finesse, and certainly any sense of chivalry, which may have been carried over from previous traditions. Tactics and strategy in the Thirty Years' War, noted the historian David A. Parrott, are best characterised as being undermined by two persistent failures, in the one case to break the dominance of the defensive, in the other to cope with the logistical inadequacy. This was doubly true if we were talking about a siege rather than a pitched battle, deciding the fortunes of men's ambitions. We've dwelt before on the innovations that made siege warfare more sophisticated and advanced in comparison to the conditions of, say, the Middle Ages. Siege warfare had certainly changed since then, even if the fundamental goal of both parties remained the same, and the struggle remained hideously gory. The likelihood of success for the besieger and the options at the disposal of the besieged had simultaneously increased with the innovations under the Trace Italienne system. Siege warfare now demanded a more delicate, organised approach with sophisticated techniques that were tried and tested, such as the digging and manning of thorough trenches or the starving out of a bastion. Knocking down a fortress's walls, in other words, would no longer suffice. Nor were these newly designed walls as easy to level. The besieger had to be wary of a relief force, just as the besieged had to be mindful of his options, such as additional citadels deeper in the fortress, the best means of resupply, and the best methods for harnessing interlocking fields of fire from emplaced gun batteries. These recent innovations represented significant technological steps forward, and should not be ignored. Arguably not since the invention of the trebuchet had the nature of siege warfare been so affected. Much like the design of the trebuchet, indeed, the design of the Trace Italienne soon spread like wildfire across the continent, or at least to where defensive fortifications were traditionally required. Then again, such sophistication would only ever go so far, since a siege would be won or lost with the meeting of the defender and the attacker, and regardless of any ideas or concepts of chivalry or weaponry used, such a fight was always going to be bloody, bitterly contested and costly. The examples of sieges that we highlighted, like those of St. Martin's on the Isle of Ray by the English, and of Casal by the Spanish Savoyard forces in the late 1620s, were both traumatic affairs, made no less horrible by the arrival of the Trace Italienne, or supposedly more sophisticated siege techniques, than had been used before. As had been the intention all along, the Trace Italienne, with its low, thick, reinforced earthen walls, angled bastions and strategically positioned artillery pieces, made the siege a uniquely dangerous and miserable experience for the besieger. Hours of digging, 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 of manning huge endless trenches which were intended to cut off and surround fortresses, and of gingerly approaching hazardous gun emplacements, and occasionally rushing the gauntlet, were all within the job description of a besieging soldier. While it was rare for a garrison to resist with all his might, ironic considering how much had been spent on the fortifications in the first place, these acts of desperate resistance did happen, but they only ever happened when the garrison's commander believed they had a genuine chance of success or that relief was on the way. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Yet even military systems which are upheld as the most advanced and superior to its contemporaries ran into problems with sieges simply because of the sheer weight of demands placed upon the besieger in comparison to sieges of the past. Britain's new model army, for instance, faced a morass of problems during sieges of its enemies across the British Isles. Even while some successes were enjoyed by Cromwell's troops and garrisons suitably punished by the protector, this did not mean that sieges had become downgraded to a mere nuisance. They remained a serious challenge, requiring all manner of resources and a firm grasp of coordinated logistics to successfully complete. Traditionally, the English had neglected their siege-making skills honed by their continental neighbours and had upheld instead the importance of pitched battles. With all their royalist enemies in Britain and Ireland hunkering down in fortified positions and towns, though, from 1645 it became an essential mission to reduce each of these places one by one, and this proved a task only completed after much hard grit, human lives and, of course, time had been expended. Not until the fall of Galway on Ireland's west coast in 1652 could the British civil wars officially be considered at an end. Considering what we learned about England's shortcomings during the siege on the Isle of Ray, it shouldn't surprise us too much to note the difficulties of that same state two decades later when they engaged in sieges. The army and the navy were two distinctly important pillars of England and then of Britain's military establishment, but due to the country's position on the periphery of the continent, and due to the comparative safety that geography provided from continental enemies, English siegecraft theory and practice lagged far behind its French or particularly Dutch and Spanish neighbours. This is understandable, since as that old mantra tells us, practice makes perfect, and the English engaged in no sieges at all, apart from the brief intervention on the Isle of Ray between 1604 to 1645. The Anglo-Spanish War, begun under Elizabeth, was itself a learning process. 
It was a sudden, abrupt introduction to the requirements of the siege in the last two decades of the 16th century, which forced the English to abandon something that up to that point they had held on to, that being the longbow. The case study we have examined of English reluctance to abandon the longbow in favour of the firearm remains an important part of the story, not just for the technical details, but also for what it tells us about how important actual participation in a war was. Compared to her neighbours, England was in the lower tier of experience, of military theory and thus of professionalism and skill. The Dutch were positively aghast when English captains and soldiers began arriving ostensibly to help them in their revolt, only to force upon them incompatible ideas like aristocratic hierarchies on the battlefield and outdated, flawed siege tactics. It was a steep learning curve, and even in the war against Spain from 1585 to 1604, while some gains were made, the English, you'll note, were never so foolish as to engage with the vaunted Tertio infantry on the open plains. One could hardly learn the lessons of war when one was not at war, especially since the kind of military academies and schools had yet to materialise on the level which they later would. As a result, not only did military technology and its revolutions proceed apace in the region where conflict was most consistent and pronounced, Western Europe that is, but some historians have even supposed that it was because of this repeated exposure to conflict that the West superseded the East in terms of technological prowess, and went on to colonise the world. It is, of course, a fascinating idea to measure the extent to which different technologies were interacted with and how they impacted the societies and military systems that attempted to harness their power. And these new systems were created not merely in Europe, but also across the wider world. Implications for the military revolution and these technologies on the likes of Russia, Japan, Mughal, India, and the Chinese are all deserving of comprehensive studies of their own. But the military revolution tends to focus on Western Europe, so that is where our focus has largely stayed fixed. Such details are also most relevant to our wider Thirty Years' War narrative, and adds additional context to the decisions and revolutions which were furthered by the era's innovators. Military revolution as a term was first coined by Michael Roberts in 1957, the parameters of 1560 to 1660 were added, and in between this block of 100 years, Roberts focused on the years 1630 to 32 as the focal point of the revolution, where Gustavus Adolphus had the greatest impact. Following this study, it was Geoffrey Parker who singled out four changes in the European art of war as crucial. The historian, Anarud Deshband, summarises these most effectively. First came a revolutionary change in tactics, with emergence of massed archers and organised musketry. Secondly, the army size in most states grew markedly. Thirdly, more complex and ambitious strategies were evolved to bring these men into action. Finally, these factors in combination had an important impact upon society. Our discussion of the military revolution has revealed several inherent flaws within the military revolution theory, but we've also learned that the theory itself has remained dynamic and fluid, as new scholars have added their expertise to the debate. Arguably, the most significant contribution to this whole debate was provided by the historian Geoffrey Parker, who identified the development of the Tres Italien fortification systems 
as a further example of the military revolution. Parker, in contrast to Roberts, underlined the importance of the Tres Italien in necessitating the growth of armies which would be required to properly besiege and seize these places. Parker opined that it was in the field of logistics rather than tactics necessarily that Europeans dramatically improved, stating that The states of early modern Europe had discovered how to supply large armies, but not how to lead them to victory. At the heart of Michael Roberts's theory, notwithstanding the challenges which it has been subjected to, lay the observation about the growth of army size and what this meant for warfare. This provoked additional comments from the likes of John A. Lynn, who opined that the true reason for the increase in army size, at least in the case of France, which is where he specialised, was not the sophistication of the fortresses under the Trace Italian style necessarily, but the enhanced firepower of the defenders, who could now reach further into the attackers' trenches with their heavy guns that were emplaced on their fortifications. To counteract this advantage of the besieged, and to avoid these guns, the besiegers were forced to dig trenches from up to a mile out from the walls, which only compounded the size and scope of each siege operation, and forced concerned governments to employ more soldiers and engineers to staff these trenches and complete the siege satisfactorily. Now, that debate may appear like little more than splitting hairs, but through their studies, both Parker and Lynn have added monumentally to our understanding of how a siege worked in the era, how the process had changed during these innovative years, and what was demanded of those that accepted the challenge. Regardless of who is correct, there can be little doubt that the Trace Italien absolutely revolutionised the way Europeans made war, even if the impact on each state was, of course, felt differently. Another important consideration is the sheer importance of the siege in comparison to the pitched battle. While it is true that pitched battles often stick out as the more impressive, triumphant or glamorous in comparison to the drudgery of endless protracted sieges, the reality was that pitched battles were not particularly decisive throughout the 17th and then into the 18th century. When a defeated enemy could simply withdraw into his fortress, it made far more sense to move against this fortress first, rather than engage in a two-stage process which would cost more lives and deliver considerably less results. While it is correct in a sense to question the very concept of decisive battles as too simplistic or reductionist as a concept, it will be a great leap on the other end of the scale to claim that warfare produced no truly significant results during the 17th century, or that the period could be classified as one of limited warfare, as some historians have tried to do. One historian has noted that it is possible to count on one hand the amount of pitched battles that took place between 1547 to 1631, a space of time bookended by the 1547 Battle of Muehlberg and the 1631 Battle of Breitenfeld. Not until Napoleon Bonaparte engaged in his own military revolution and the army's ability to destroy its opponents became greater than the opponent's ability to resist or flee would sieges decline in importance. However, as we have also learned, this reliance upon sieges to defend or expand the realm did not mean that different states made no efforts to improve the abilities or tactics of the fighting man. Statistically, the likelihood of success for sieges increased as the years progressed, because technology continued to advance, 
but also because the soldier became more disciplined and effective as an instrument of war on the battlefield. Why? Because he had been thoroughly trained and drilled in the proper mechanics and lessons of war, and he understood how to apply these lessons to any problems that he encountered. If we can pinpoint the development of the Trace Italien as a fundamentally critical step forward, then the other significant development in military affairs must be considered as the prevalence of the infantry drill. Not only do the innovations of Maurice of Nassau have an impact on the formations which would actually be taken to the battlefield, but by providing these soldiers with drill instruction manuals, by formulating several detailed drill commands, by training regularly and by conceptualising these ideas into schools of military thought which were then taught in the fledging military academies, all of these factors meant that warfare was destined never to be the same again. Maurice and his successors managed to transform a Dutch army comprised of militia into a professional disciplined fighting force that could rise up to the challenge posed by the Spanish enemy. Again, it must be emphasised that it was largely thanks to Maurice of Nassau's quest to find a better, more effective way to defeat his enemy that the impetus for developing these new ideas in the first place was felt. Constant warfare was an expensive, merciless school and a costly way for statesmen and commanders to learn new techniques, but it also forced these commanders to improvise when they were searching for new ways to reduce their costs, and this mission was felt to be worth it so long as conflicts dragged on for such a long length of time. By the time Maurice of Nassau brought his new tactics of the fire-by-rank musket drill to bear against the Spanish Tercio formations at the Battle of Newport in July 1600, the Dutch still had more than 40 years left in their war against Spain. If they were to survive, they could not afford to remain static in their innovations or research. New ideas would have to be imagined, honed, and then tested on the battlefield. Since the laboratory of the battlefield was open to the Dutch for a full 80 years, it is hardly surprising that they, coming to the conflict with no original military theories of their own, and facing down the supreme military power of the world in the Spanish, felt forced to innovate. The infantry drill was revolutionary because it required the musketeer to stand in a unit several ranks deep and to fire his weapon according to a specific command, followed by another command which would involve him marching to the back of his unit with his back to the enemy as he did so. This last point may appear insignificant to us, but the act of presenting your back to the enemy was one of the major reasons Maurice of Nassau's contemporaries found the concept so distasteful. It was, they believed, too close to the image presented by a retreat. Yet, by moving the vulnerable musketeer to the back of the line and presenting the locked and loaded succeeding line to the enemy, Maurice managed to pour down a nearly endless wall of firepower. By the time six or seven ranks had fired, the idea was that the first rank would have reloaded and be ready to fire again. Such a tactic required an immense amount of coordination and practice to get right, but the nucleus of the idea would be carried forward right up to the American Civil War of the 1860s. By that time, it was unthinkable that anything other than firepower, and as much firepower as possible, mattered. Indeed, the coordination and skill required to perfect this tactic was honed by the Dutch affinity for producing drill instruction manuals with convenient pictures, detailing exactly what each stage of the fire-by-rank drill should look like in excruciating detail. 
When it was boiled down on the trading yard, or indeed the battlefield, captains found that the process was a lot less complicated than it looked. The point, of course, was to build the Dutch soldier regardless of his initial level of expertise or professionalism. A peasant from one of the polder farms of Amsterdam would be able to master the drill just as surely as a veteran of the Polish-Swedish wars. All he had to do was to listen to the instructions of his commander and, of course, practice, practice, practice. The fondness for practicing, indeed the urgent need for practicing if the core tenets of the fire-by-rank drill were to be absorbed, became a feature of virtually all European armies in the latter half of the 17th century. Britain's aforementioned new model army was a great example of this adherence to the drill, but so were the armies under Louis XIV, the forces of the Swedish Empire, and those of Brandenburg, Prussia, once that state came of age, with the great electors' increased intervention in the affairs of others. Frederick William, the great elector, increased Brandenburg's profile by crafting one of the most well-trained and effective fighting forces on the continent, and even while they were not the largest, working out at about 30,000 men at most, the reputation of this force preceded them because they were constantly practicing the drill. There was a good reason as well for all this practice in Maurice of Nassau's army. The Dutch stadtholder knew that his men would be up against the cream of the military crop at the time, that being the Spanish Tertio infantry. Tertios were the Roman legions of the 16th century. The formation consisted of a pike square anchoring the group of men with musketeers, arquebusiers, and in earlier designs, archers and javelin men standing on the outside of the square, ready to fire at the enemy. If the enemy remained stationary and endured the barrage of lead and missiles, they would suffer painful losses, but if they moved to engage the formation head-on, then the pikemen would angle their spears and protect the musket men at the front from any approaching infantry. In the time before the musket conquered all, swordsmen could even be found in the centre behind the pikemen and would be in a position to rush forward and engage with the enemy if necessary. As time progressed though, swordsmen were phased out in favour of more firepower and musketeers. The advantage of the Tertio was its versatility. It could fight infantry and offset the force of a charging line of cavalry. It was vulnerable to cannon fire, but so was every formation during this period. In addition, the act of moving in a defensive posture meant the Tertios moved slowly and had to exercise a great deal of coordination to ensure that all parts of the machine operated effectively. One should remember that it was the Spanish who perfected and continued to refine the Tertio as no other power in Europe could. Only Spain contained the bank of experienced veterans necessary to adequately train more soldiers for the Tertio, and thus the Spanish were always going to be the best at using it. Accepting this, Maurice of Nassau moved to create a new formation which would beat the Spanish Tertio, rather than attempting to beat the Spanish at their own game. In the next episode, our final instalment on 17th century warfare, we're going to conclude on everything we've learned here. Just as surely as it was a clash of styles that opened the Battle of Newport at the very beginning of the 17th century, so too do historians continue to clash over what it all meant and why you should care. So join me, your humble host, in two weeks' time for our final 30 Years War episode of 2019 and our final episode of 17th Century Warfare before we jump into the narrative, and we're going to find out why. Until then, though, history friends, my name is Zach, 
and this has been the 14th part of our examination on 17th century warfare. Thanks so much for joining me, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.